arrested for that work and was put into custody in the house of an aristocrat named um, Asterius. And while he was in custody, he began speaking with Asterius and shared the gospel with Asterius. And Asterius said, tell you what, I'll make you a deal. If you can heal my daughter, I will follow your God. And so Valentinus prayed for his daughter who was blind and she received her sight. And Asterius and his whole family converted. And when Gothicus heard of this, he uh, gave the order that the entire family, along with Valentinus, were to be executed. And um, uh, as the story goes, in the end, only Valentinus was beheaded for uh, sharing his faith. Uh, another another story is uh, also um, you know in this third century period, but the emperor uh, related in this story was one named Claudius, and um, Claudius was embroiled in costly wars because uh, the Roman Empire uh, had a tendency to be inv- involved in in war, and he he concluded that single young men. Uh, made better warriors than young men who were married and had uh, wives and children because then they weren't distracted and their thoughts weren't elsewhere when they were supposed to be fighting. And so he outlawed marriage of young men. And uh, this Valentinus character decided that he wasn't going to follow this edict and he continued to marry people in secret. And when Claudius caught wind of this, he was uh, less than pleased and had uh, Valentinus beheaded um, to dissuade people from the idea of marrying somebody that you love. Um, you know, and so today we celebrate Valentine's Day and it's far removed from this idea of living a life that is devoted to something that one holds valuable or true something that you would be willing to die for. I don't know how many of us would uh, be willing to uh, run the risk of imprisonment, much less you know, beheading or guillotine or however, lethal injection. Um, so we, uh, that's kind of what I wanted to talk about today is this idea of a life well-lived or a life that is driven by passion or a vision uh, fueled by God's love. And as a way of setting the stage, uh, I want to read a passage out of Philippians um, where Paul is, he's, uh, he's glorying in the salvation that comes from the Lord that does not depend on us. It's the salvation that is given to us by the work that Christ accomplished on the cross and he's expressing his earnest desire to know Christ and to follow after him and he's encouraging his listeners to press on toward the goal to achieve uh, the goal to strive and that idea of what does it look like what does a life well lived look like and uh, so with that let me read this passage out of Philippians this is out of the the fourth chapter Uh, verses 4 through 9. It's a very well-known passage. Um, So, let's listen. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. So I want to talk about life as uh, a work of art. Like you think of some of the great works of art. And aside from, you know, the technical excellence of an artist, somebody who's honed their craft and spent years and years figuring out how to do what they do, what is it that makes their work great? What is it that makes it sustained through time? And is it not some sense of they capture truth or they capture beauty or they capture the struggle, the passion, things that tell the, the human story? And when we witness them, we are moved by it. We can relate to it. It speaks to us. Something where the artist, his, his worldview comes through and it is expressed and we are able to understand it because it's part of who we are. It tells our story. And when we apply the idea of a great work of art to that of a human life, who do we think about? You know, there's all these great figures in history that we could, we could point to to say, oh, that man was great or that woman was remarkable. But what is it about them? that made them great, and why do we say their life was a life well lived? And my contention is that no matter how big or how small a person is, a life of worship is what will ultimately be seen to be a truly great work of art. And these things that Paul talks about, whatever is beautiful, Whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, or praiseworthy. If we were to train our hearts on these things, it's going to create a life that is going to be imbued with uh, a sense of strength or integrity. Something that's not going to be uh, broken by the stresses of time and, and uh, chance. It'll produce a culture of safety and humor and beauty. It'll imbue the people that experience this work of art. It'll imbue them with hope. It'll imbue them with dignity. It'll lift them. And it'll encourage them to continue to move on and tell the story. It'll, be, uh, it'll create an ethos of love, creativity. And, and 
on the surface, it's easy, I think, you know, for us to envision this kind of an idea, this kind of a life where you're like, oh yeah, somebody who lives really well and they have all these great things going for them and it's beautiful and, you know. But there are all these impediments that seem to get in the way that keep us from moving into that kind of a life for ourselves. And it's these things that I want to address some of these things, it's not an exhaustive list by any stretch of the imagination, but just little snapshots into individual lives and individual uh, default settings that we have in our heart. The first such uh, snapshot that I want to give is the idea that it's all a sham. And this seems to be fairly prevalent today. Um, there's this very nihilistic um, undercurrent in our culture where people they've given up looking for a place that's solid they don't life doesn't have any end purpose or real meaning it's not something that is imbued with sense of the divine and they're just living life and they have given up the idea of of uh, looking for uh, a hero the heroes of our culture are, are, are falling by the wayside. And, uh, you know, one such uh, recently, um, I don't know, many of you may know Rabbi Zacharias, but he's a man who uh, had a passion for the Lord, and he'd been in ministry for 40 years until he died in May of last year. And um, after his death, it surfaced that he had been involved in uh, a number of extramarital relationships. He was um, guilty of sexual abuse and rape. And my heart just broke when I read this because I was I followed this guy for 15 years and I've been listening to him preach for 15 years and he's built uh, an international ministry with brilliant thinkers, sharp, cutting-edge thinkers, and they're engaging in culture, and they're helping people to think well, and they've established schools, and all over the world, and this one man who was the visionary behind this whole thing, suddenly, this dark side of him just surfaces, and you're like, oh, it breaks my heart. Why does this have to happen? And when a person who's in the world and he's looking for something to hold on to that isn't going to disappoint, that isn't going to, in the end, cause dismay or cause disappointment or not going to break their heart. And you see that, you just go, why, Lord, why does that have to happen? And you can think of, I mean, the stories are replete through not only the Bible but through history of people who present themselves as strong and noble and fighting for the good cause only to be exposed as being duplicitous, hypocritical. It's painful. And um, I have to say that the RZIM team, the Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, what they did when they initially found out about this is they hired an independent firm to do, um, to investigate the whole thing. They're not, they haven't hidden a thing. They, they're very transparent. They're open. They've, they're heartfelt sorrow. 
they have expressed. And they're, they're managing this thing. And I guess if one uh, bright part of the whole story is that the world needs an example of uh, an organization like this walking through these times and doing it well because uh, no matter where you look, any human industry and institution is going to be crippled by these kind of things at some point in some time and we need to know how to handle it well. But when you have these people that look at something like that, I, I play with a bunch of musicians up here that aren't Christians and, or they're, they're, they're lapsed Christians, they grew up in a Christian house. One of my friends, um, her father um, ended up leaving her family uh, and running away with a woman who was on a mission trip with him. You go, oh, ouch, yeah. I can understand why you might not want to engage in the church life anymore because it's a hard life. Um, it's, it's, it's difficult, these stumbling blocks that are thrown our way. And yet, you know, it's easy to look at someone and say, I, I don't want to be a part of that. But then there's also the flip side of the coin where we can investigate our own hearts and we recognize in our own person that there's this brokenness and there's this fractured heart and we're afraid to even try to stand up to say, I'm going to try and live a life that's beautiful, that's fueled by the love of the Lord because I'm afraid of my heart. I'm afraid of what I'll do. I don't want to make a mistake. I don't want to drag people down. I don't want to be uh, this person that people point to as a cosmic failure. So I'll just, I'll just play it safe. I'm just not going to do anything. Snapshot number one. And it's interesting, you know, Ravi Zacharias, uh, when he was, uh, would give his lectures, oftentimes he would recite a poem that was written by an elementary school teacher. And I don't know what the, the internal life of Ravi was like to be a man on his kind of a platform and then to be living this life underneath that he was hiding from people I don't know what kind of battles went on in his heart but I have a tendency to think that he kept coming back to this poem because he held it close to his heart and it was something for which was a very real tangible sense of dear Lord I'm a wicked man, depart from me. And feeling his grace again and again and again, I don't know. I'm not, I, I can't judge. But I just know that uh, he had a, a penchant for coming back to this poem. And so I'll, I'll read it for you. He came to my desk with a quivering lip. The lesson was done. Have you a new sheet for me, dear teacher? I've spoiled this one. I took his sheet, all soiled and blotted, and gave him a new one, all unspotted, and into his tired heart I cried, Do better now, my child. I went to the throne with a trembling heart. The day was done. Have you a new day for me, dear master? I've spoiled this one. He took my day all soiled and blotted and gave me a new one all unspotted and into my tired heart he cried do better now my child a 
A second uh, thing that I find fairly prevalent in our culture today is this idea of being the victim. It's like, had I not been born into this family, had I not been crippled with this disease, had I not uh, had that person for a mother or a father, had I not been born on this planet at this time, on this continent, in this state. It's like the list goes on of things that we can point our finger at and say, uh, things would be different if it weren't for that person or this thing or that circumstance. And we play this victim card. I can't do anything, I'm a victim. And uh, to that, I would, I would just uh, tell you this story. And I tried to... Re- <laughs> this is a true story, and I can't find the source because I would have loved to have cited it, but it's in a book, and it's lodged in my brain, and I can't for the life of me remember where I heard this. But it's a story of a guy named Steve, and Steve was born into a less-than-fortunate uh, circumstance. Uh, his his parents were not good parents, and he was uh, subject to abuse. And uh, so he just, from the time when he was a little boy, he was just he's broken. He was just a broken boy. And he ended up in a world of drug addiction, um, living on the streets uh, with nothing. And at some point, he ends up in a rehab clinic, and he hears the hope of the gospel. And the Lord gave him hope. The Lord came into his heart and set it on fire. And he started working around the clinic, mopping floors, cleaning toilets, doing whatever it was that uh, they asked him to do. And it was all janitorial stuff to the point where he made himself fairly indispensable. And uh, they hired him to stay on staff as a janitor. And so day after day, he would go in and mop floors and clean toilets and clean up puke and help these men. And he would counsel these men. He would spend time with them. He'd learn their names. And he had a ministry to these people that are just the misfits of our world and the broken ones. And he did it through simple things by cleaning a floor or a toilet or by helping a person back into his bed and letting him know that there's someone there and touching them. And at one point, uh, a traveling, uh, uh, they had hired a, a pastor to come in and talk to these people. And uh, another person had responded to this person's message. And he was praying after the message that he had just heard. And the pastor was walking by this man who had been in the clinic for some time. And he heard the man saying, just make me like Steve. Just make me like Steve. Just make me like Steve. And the pastor said, asked him, because he was curious. He's like, what what do you mean? Don't you mean Jesus? And he's like, Jesus? Is he like Steve? And it's just like, he didn't know who Jesus was. But he knew, he knew Steve. And so the idea of, you know, we, we can play the victim card, but it's not going to get us anywhere. And there's no point in looking up at all the people who have more than we who, who have more talent or more money or, you know, the only time that we should look up is if we're looking at Jesus and his example. And his example was to 
drive himself to the bottom so that he could lift up everyone. A third category snapshot that I've noticed often is the idea that I'm, I'm just a nobody. Who am I? I'm just one person. I don't have any real talent. I don't have any real, you know, uh, what can I do with the life that I have? You know, it's like, I have a hard enough time just, you know, making my bed in the morning. And uh, you live in this life of defeat. Like, you just, you can't do anything. And, and to that, I would tell you this story. And this is something that happened to me when I was about 30. I was traveling through, uh, I was in Europe, and I had decided to just take a ride. So I shipped my bike and my guitar over there, and I started in England, and I rode south and uh, by way of Norway, and then jumped onto Denmark and down through into Italy. But I was by myself the whole time, and uh, playing my guitar along the way, and, and it was the coldest, wettest summer in European history for like the last hundred years. And so I spent a lot of time cold and wet. And uh, it was the, <laughs> it was an unfortunate summer to ride. But uh, there was one particular day, I was in northern Germany, and it was, I woke up and I heard the rain on the tent. I'm like, ah, oh, more rain. Uh, okay, I might as well get busy doing, you know, just going. So I got up, got dressed, and it wasn't a hard rain. It was more like just a drizzle. And I was riding, and I was cold, and had no intention of stopping anywhere for a while. But as I rode up this town into this little, this little hamlet of a German town on the top of this hill, as I started entering into it, the whole sky just broke open, and the sun came flooding down onto the streets, and it just lit everything up. And I rode by, and I looked down this street, and there was this cobblestone street that was just all aglow. And I was like, oh. So I'd circled back and I went down this street and I saw the little coffee shop with a bench in front of it and I thought, oh, this is perfect. So I parked my bike and I got my guitar and put my case out and, and I started playing music and, and not too long after I started playing, this woman came up on a tricycle. She comes up the street and she saw me and she passed and then she circled around and went over to the coffee shop and, and it wasn't until then that I realized she had some sort of a physical disability. And she was, because uh, it took her like, you know, three minutes to get from her bike to the table, which was about six feet away, because she had to navigate her body that didn't work. And she sat down, ordered a cup of coffee, and she was content. You know, she's sitting in the sun, listening to some music, and life is good. And, um, and that's how I kept playing. And then this bag lady comes walking up the street, and I'm watching her, and she's staring me straight in the face. And a uh, typical bag lady, she had like three hats on and, you know, four coats and her legs were stuffed into these boots and it's just like, she looked like she'd been sleeping on the streets forever. And she came up and she's carrying these bags and she sets her bags down and she looked really like kind of angry. And I was like, I don't know what going on here but and then so she she slams her bags down and then she's like kidding around with me because she smiled and she waved at me and then she picked up her bags and walked on and I was like oh that was cool I'm glad that's what that was because for a second there I was really worried about what she was going to do or say or I had no idea 
<laughs> so I kept playing. I was like, oh, this is interesting. You know, this is really fun. And uh, so I, about 15 minutes later, um, no, actually, I should tell this too. So I'm still playing. And then this big, huge giant of a man comes walking by. And he looked over at me, and I saw him. And I just, I smiled at him. I had, you know, I was like, hey, smile, hey. And uh, he just looked at me, and he was so heavy, and he just kept walking. And didn't give me the time of day, which was fine. I'm just glad he didn't hit me, because that's kind of what he looked like. He looked like he wanted to hit somebody. And he got about 150 feet, no, 100 feet away from me, and he stopped. And he's standing there in the middle of the street, and he stood there for about, I don't know, 15, 20 seconds, just not moving. And then he turned around and he walked all the way back and he put a coin in my guitar case. And when he walked away again the second time, it was like, it was different. Like his, his body was, his shoulders were different, the way he was holding himself. And I thought, oh, that was cool. So I got playing. And then all of a sudden I recognized this lady, this bag lady that had come earlier. She's standing there and she's holding in her hands a brown paper bag and she's motioning to give it to me. And, and I didn't know that I wanted it because I didn't know where she got it. And I was kind of nervous and so I just indicated for her to set it on the, the bench that I was sitting on. And so she did that. She set it on the bench and then she reached down into one of her bags and she pulled out this purse and she opened it up and she just dumped the whole thing into my guitar case. And then she snapped it shut, shoved it back in her bag, smiled and waved and then picked up her bags and walked away. And I started crying because at the beauty of the, I, did, I didn't understand what had just happened. I'm like, this woman is on the bottom of our social structure. She sleeps on the streets and she has the audacity to come up and bless me as if she has anything to offer. And it changed the course of my life. So if you think you've got nothing to offer, you're wrong. This woman, when she did that, I saw the woman who was sitting at the coffee table her and I, we made eye contact and sh- her mouth was hanging open and she was crying because the beauty of what we just witnessed was like, I don't understand how that happens. And I guess I, I forgot to tell the rest of the story earlier, but uh, as I was leaving that day, I had tied up my pack and everything and, and I was getting on my bike and I looked and that bag was still on the bench I hadn't touched it I didn't go and look at it and I was like I, I, should, I should go look at that so I went over there and I picked up the bag and I opened it up and there were three tomatoes on a vine and I thought oh. and to this day I think I I don't know if she was an angel but I don't think it was a mistake I think the Lord brought her and uh, inspired her to do what she did to say, it doesn't matter how big you are or how small you are. The power of an act that is fueled by the hope that the Lord gives, you have no idea the impact it can have and where it'll go. And this woman had no idea that I'd be telling her story now. This is 20 years later. Crazy. Um, so not too long ago, this is... Uh, Gosh, within the last two years, 
for a long time, I was in the home remodeling, world construction, whatever came across my way. And I was doing a siding project up in um, north of Silverthorne. And I had finished uh, siding this house, and there was a leftover piece of siding that was about two feet by eight feet long. And when I saw it, I was like, ah, I'm going to paint something on that. And so I took it home, and I painted it white, and I bolted it to the wall in my living room. And it looks like that. (laughs) And there it sat for about seven years. My wife was very fond of (laughs) the big white piece of plywood stuck to our wall in the living room. And it kind of took on a... uh, It became a metaphor for me. It was just like I was, I was this piece of white plywood. And I was terrified after a while to do anything. I didn't want to make a mistake. This is a big, huge, white canvas. And I'm like, oh, what if I make a mistake? What if it looks ugly? What if I... And uh, so it just remained blank. And I thought... And, and at the time, um, I started to feel this thing. It was like pushing me and bugging me, you know? And I'm like... And in, in my life, I kind of felt the Lord pushing me, bugging me. Hey, do something. Do something. And I felt stuck. I was like afraid. And so Darla, at one point, she took the boys, and she was gone for a long weekend. And so I was by myself, and I was like, all right, that's it. I'm going to do something. I don't care how terribly tragic my work comes out, but I'm going to try something. And so I had this picture of my family. And so I grabbed that, and I stuck it to the side of the, uh, the uh, plywood there and I got out some acrylics and I'd never worked with acrylics before and uh, it shows when you see the end product that uh, I had no idea what I was doing. But um, So I started working with this thing and the first night was it was a battle. I was like fighting and I couldn't find, the medium was all uncomfortable and I didn't, acrylics, I don't know how to work with these. I should have watched some YouTube video or something but uh, I didn't. And then the next night, I'm like, okay, I'm going to tackle this again. It's going to get better. And so I start working with it again, trying to work with the color. And at the end of my second night's travail, this is kind of what I ended up with here. And uh, it's not great art. (laughs) But I like, you know, it's like now when I look at that, I'm thinking there's something about it that it warms my heart when I think about it. But anyway, the funny thing was uh, Darla came home the next day. And the first thing that happened was she walked in the front door and she saw this. And she said, what the blank is that? That is not staying there. You've got to paint over that. I can't have that in my living room. And I was laughing because I thought, no, come on. At least chuckle a little bit. It's, good. it's funny, but it's caused no end of humor for me because I, I show it to my friends and say, uh, this was my attempt at uh, <laughs> being an artist. But I bring this up. This is, this is my, my personal appeal to you guys to say, no matter who you are, how big or how small you think you are, or whatever circumstance you're in, don't be afraid to take a stab at it and try something. You know, it's like the Lord can redeem anything, even something as tragic as that uh, painting there. You know, it's like when we look back in time and we see the, the, the depths of our brokenness and the things that we've done out of that, 
and we understand that the Lord's grace covers all of that, a multitude of sins, he can redeem anything and everything. But the, it's the motion, it's the power of a life that is fueled by the hope that the Lord is real, that his grace is real, and that he can redeem anything and everything. He can reconcile everything to himself. And um, I want to conclude, uh, I, I'll conclude with this. This is uh, something I was, I was working on, uh, this idea uh, before Jim even asked me to preach, and so I thought, oh, this is good. Um, it fits in with what I was trying to wrap my mind around. And so um, I will leave you with this. Nowadays, it is popular to say that the whole is equal to the sum of the parts. As if to say, by understanding each individual part, we can grasp the whole. And it seems that this thinking, or some semblance of it, has smuggled itself into the assessment or valuation of an individual life. To see one aspect of a person's life suddenly gives one the wisdom or discernment to judge the whole. But to see every part of a life in isolation, stripped down and disconnected, severs the golden thread that binds the parts into a glorious whole. And the sum of the parts of a person's journey, with all of its glorious mountaintops and dark valleys, with all of its great deeds and petty insignificant drudgeries, all of its weighty or thoughtless decisions to do or not to do, all of its loves and hates, joys and fears, tranquilities and tempests, successes and failures. The sum of all of these serve as a medium by which we paint ourselves onto the canvas of time that the Lord has given us. And it is only the Lord who can judge. Our lives Every facet are a gift, an opportunity to create something beautiful, a work of art that both reflects the glory of God and catches others up to rejoice, responding to the beauty we create. And the Lord has given us his spirit and has written his law upon our hearts of flesh that we may know him and celebrate with him that which is true and noble, and right, and pure, lovely, and admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy. Because he is our creator, we create. Because he loves us, we love. Following in his footsteps, we work and rest, we write and sing and dance, we design and build, we plant and harvest, we forgive and redeem. The sum of all these, the light, the dark, the not so beautiful and the glorious, this is the gift. And what we do with the gift remains to be seen. And this is worship. Let us pray. 
Heavenly Father, I just ask for your heart, Father. Let it beat within our chests, within the midst of our congregation, Lord. May we grow to know you uh, in a way that inspires us, Father, to take a chance, to step out into the world of the uncomfortable, not knowing whether we're going to make a tragic mess of things. Knowing, Father, that if you're guiding us, even if we do fail miserably, you have the ability to redeem and to make beautiful. Thank you, Father, for your grace that says again and again and again, do better now, my child. May we never lose sight of that, Father, and may we use the tools that you've put into our hands to do what we can, Father, to live a life that in some point in time, at some day down in the, uh, when you've come and redeemed, that we can look and say, look at this work of art. Look at where we failed and look at where we strove and look at where the Lord lifted and redeemed and look at the beauty that it created. May we be inspired, Father, to live well, to live a life of worship. We pray in your name, amen.